Good afternoon. I'd like to welcome you all to the Department of Defense Bloggers Roundtable for Thursday, April 10th, 2014. My name is William Selby with the Office of the Secretary of Defense Public Affairs, and I'll be moderating the call. Today, we are honored to have as our guest the 18th Chairman of the Joint Chiefs of Staff, General Martin E. Dempsey, who will be discussing sexual assault prevention and response. A note to the bloggers on the line today, please remember to clearly state your name and blog or organization in advance of your question. Please respect the Chairman's time keeping questions succinct and to the point, and please keep all questions on topic. Uh, if you are not asking a question, we also ask that you please place your phone on mute so we do not hear any outside noise. And sir, with that, the floor is yours if you have an opening statement. Thanks. Let me make sure you can hear me and that I haven't somehow inadvertently muted myself. Can you hear me okay? Loud and clear, sir. And by the way, if this group stays uh, on topic, it'll be the first engagement I've had since I've been chairman where that ended up being the case. But I do encourage you to do so because I really do want to talk about this very important issue um, and just share a couple of thoughts with you. You know, I, I've, uh, I've had a lot of um, time to think recently uh, as we look at our, uh, how we're adapting our national security strategy, and I've been thinking a great deal about what makes America exceptional, this, this idea of American exceptionalism, and the part that the United States military plays in that, and that's not the topic of this conversation. But what that caused me to do is also then begin to think about what makes the United States military exceptional. And, and what defines us as a profession. And um, I would suggest to you that uh, what makes the United States military exceptional is the bond of trust that must bind it together because of what we ask young men and women to do. We ask them to put themselves in harm's way, ultimately. And to do that, they've got to have an incredible degree of trust among them. And that's why uh, this particular issue is so... Um, is so corrosive and so damaging uh, to the military because it erodes that bond of trust. And, I mean, it's, it's, I, I came yesterday from the, the uh, memorial service at Fort Hood, Texas, for the, the very tragic shooting uh, that occurred there, which was essentially an insider attack. That's, that's how we would describe it um, in tactical terms, where one of, one of our own turned against us. And uh, that's the perfect description for what happens in a sexual assault is where one of our own turns against us. And so uh, sexual assault is an insider attack, uh, and we have to treat it with the urgency and with the seriousness um, that it deserves. And we are. Um, it boils down to good leadership. I mean, we've got to work this from the top down and the bottom up. Uh, that means we've got to have the right policies in place, and we've got to have leaders at every level to include our youngest leaders who are uh, alert to and vigilant for the the kind of behaviors that lead up to a sexual assault, and they've got to be um, committed to dealing with it when it occurs. And you know that means no bystanders. There's no there can't be any bystanders in this issue. And that again goes from the top to the bottom and the bottom to the top. So let me let me stop there because I do want to spend most of the time here uh, hearing what's on our bloggers' minds. And I thank you for your interest uh, and your participation today. Thank you, sir. And our first blogger on the line was Tom Goring. Tom, go ahead with your question. Uh, yes, sir. My name is Tom Goring. I'm a retired Navy Mass Chief, and I'm with NavyCyberspace.com, or NavyCS.com, excuse me. Um, I was reading the USA Today, and uh, on the 3rd of April, 
of this year, uh, Susan Page wrote an article uh, where she was talking to Senator, Chris, uh, Senator Gillibrand from New York. And in that statement, they were talking about the legislation that was trying to go through last year that would have taken, uh, well, as a matter of fact, I'll quote the article, uh, the reason we're, tr- we're urging that this decision not be made by commanders, in other words, bringing sexual assault to further investigation, but to be, uh, by well-trained military prosecutors is because we want justice that is blind. You want to rely on an objective review, something that's professionally done, You'll have more transparency, more objectivity, and hopefully more reporting of crime, meaning there'll be more investigated, more going to trial, and more convictions. My question, sir, is if that legislation does get the five additional votes that's going to be needed to go through the Senate and it becomes law, when does it stop there? Do we take all disciplinary issues out of the commander's hands? Is this a slippery slope, sir? Thank you. Well, thanks for the question. First, I, I want to assure you and, and anyone listening that um, we, haven't, um, we haven't been fighting against the very tough questions we've been asked by several members of Congress, many, may, maybe the most members of Congress, on, on this issue. And what we've been trying to do is provide our best advice on how we can, how we can get after it. And it's always been my view, having, I've almost got 40 years in service now, and We've been through some very extraordinarily challenging times in those 40 years, beginning with, uh, as some of you may remember, with racial incidents, with, um, with, with a very serious drug problem, um, with the integration of um, uh, homosexuals into the ranks in an openly serving way with same-sex benefits. And in every case, the way we've... Um, We've led our way through those issues is through um, relying upon commanders to do what they are uh, what they are held accountable to do, which is lead and to lead equitably and to lead aggressively to make sure we have the kind of command climates we need. Now, you know, are there places where we have come up short? Absolutely. Um, I, I don't think that's the case across the board. And so, in my conversations about this issue with our members of Congress, I've made it clear that. It's my strong belief that these issues must be solved with commanders, not around them. And to your question about a slippery slope, I suppose it could be. You know, there could be... Uh, by the way, one other thing about the specific issue of, of sexual assault. If, if I thought that after a period of renewed emphasis on this, uh, or if it occurs that after a period of very intense and renewed emphasis on this, that we can't solve it, uh, I'm not going to fight it being taken away from us. I want to solve the problem. I just happen to think that we can solve it best with commanders at this point. If that is demonstrated to be ineffective, then uh, I will no longer um, provide advice that suggests it should stay in, in the chain of command. I actually think we will find, though, that that the chain of command is actually best suited to deal with it. And incidentally, prosecution rates and rates of, of taking uh, issues to trial um, demonstrate that I that I think we can best solve this with commanders. Um, is it a slippery slope? I, it, I guess it could be. You know, once you take a particular um, offense out of the Uniform Code of Military Justice, there could be some questions about why wouldn't you take um, more or, in fact, uh, most. But I think we can deal with those questions as they occur. For now, I just want to solve the problem. 
and um, at this point in time, we've been given the opportunity to do so with the chain of command. Thank you. Thank you very much, sir. And uh, Andrew, you are next. Thank you. General, good afternoon. Andrew Lube and Huffington Post. Appreciate you taking the time, sir. General, as a follow-up question, coincidentally, the military has turned it up. You've done a great job having a very victim-centric climate, which is well, which is well deserved and well needed. But at the same time, I think it was 2012, a 3,000 court martials on sexual offenses with, with convictions, a thousand stayed in. What kind of climate does it set where a third of convicted people allowed to continue their uh, continue their military career? Well, uh, in the first place, I you know I'd have to we'd have to go back and do the forensics on what exactly the offense was and what was uh, of what those individuals were convicted. I mean, sexual assault is a crime, and I, I suspect that we would find that some of those offenses, uh, probably uh, based on the prosecution, were probably adjudicated as something less than actually sexual assault or rape or penetration, but, but more in the line of... Uh, uh, inappropriate relationships, conduct unbecoming, and other things. So, again, I'd have to go back and, and see what the eventual conviction, uh, what, what was the eventual uh, uh, offense for which they were convicted. But, but, again, you know, we've been given about a year to demonstrate both that we uh, will treat this with the urgency it deserves and that we can turn the trend lines in a more positive direction. We're not going to turn it around in a year, but we can certainly demonstrate to the chain of command, including the Secretary of Defense and the President, that we can turn the trend lines. What makes it challenging, and this is uh, just to demonstrate, we're not, you mentioned we've done a lot of good work with uh, t caring for victims. We've given them additional support uh, to include legal uh, counselors that are specifically trained and focused on them. We've trained our prosecutors our venture to say we trained them as well or better than what you would find in the civilian sector, and we'll continue to do that. We've also got to get left of the offense, and that means command climate. Uh, it means uh, establishing a level of behavior uh, that uh, doesn't condone uh, or doesn't set a condition where we're not treating everyone in the ranks with dignity and respect. So we got to get left of it. We got to take care of victims, and we got to uh, get right of it in terms of prosecution. Each of which require a different uh, set of initiatives, and we've got uh, we've got uh, initiatives in each of those categories. Thank you. Thank you, and uh, Gail, you are next. General, uh, thank you for taking the time to uh, talk with us. I'm Gail Harris with the Foreign Policy Association. I'm also a retired Navy captain, and the question that kind of follow up on what the others have said, uh, it's been my observation, I've been uh, around for tremendous changes when I was in the military, all to the good, but there are situations where the administration will say that certain types of behavior are not acceptable and here's a new policy, and you have uh, a minority of uh, situations where the command gets lip service but does not follow through. So is there a procedure in place? for some young woman or man, if they feel they haven't been assaulted and that their chain of command is either ignoring them. I've seen situations where maybe you know, the chain didn't like the individual in person, so they didn't believe them. So is there some 
something in the system that you've set up, that they have an alternative uh, place to go uh, to argue for their case. Yeah, absolutely, and thanks for the opportunity to, to clear up. One of the, one of the uh, uh, bits of misperception is that uh, if something happens inside of a unit, that the, the unit commander can uh, control the reporting chain, and that's actually not true. I mean, he is one, the chain of command is one recourse that a victim has, but there are, the last time I actually spent time looking into the number of different ways where a young man or woman could report sexual harassment or sexual assault, I think the number was nine. And I could list them for you or we could provide you uh, information on the nine different ways that someone can report. But I, but I want to assure you it's not limited to talking to your immediate military supervisor or talking to your commander. It, it's, uh, it's a number of safety nets that are available, uh, and actually victims can choose whether to make reports uh, in a restricted or unrestricted way. In other words, the victim actually can control uh, the way in which the report is rendered and has a multiple has multiple uh, lanes in which to make the report. Yeah, I would uh, appreciate that. Uh, any way that I can help to get the uh, more word out than, than has been published before in that, in that aspect. Thank you. Thank you. And Phyllis. I'm Phyllis Zimbler-Miller. This is Lieutenant.blogspot.com. My question has to do with women who are deployed in harm's way. Can they use their weapons against an assault without, you know, ruining their career and being charged with, being charged with discharging their weapon? It would seem to me that when they're deployed in harm's way, they do have a weapon that they can protect themselves with. Yeah, that's that's a great question, actually, and one that uh, has come up before. I mean, you know, and even comes up in other contexts, such as the tragedy at Fort Hood yesterday. I, w I will tell you that um, that the circumstances in a combat zone clearly are different than they are uh, in a post camper station in the, in the continental United States in a non-combat environment. We've actually never had a case where the scenario you described uh, has come up. And so I can't speak to any case law. Um, I mean, if, someone is, if someone's life is threatened, you know, I have to be careful here going down the path. I'm not trained as a lawyer, uh, and I don't have one in the room with me. Uh, but as I said, there is no case law that I'm aware of to uh, allow me to answer that question. So what I would like to do, if I could, and, and I do have... Uh, uh, a young lady in the room taking notes for me who can research that um, and potentially find a way to post an answer about uh, whether the right of self-defense in a combat zone is defined somehow differently than it would be uh, in the continent of the United States. And so let me take that one uh, and answer it with greater clarity after I have time to you know, seek a legal uh, advice on it. I would appreciate that. And so could I ask one more quick question? I want to know what the military is doing about drinking in the academies, which seems to me that the excessive drinking is leading to a lot of sexual assaults, and then that uh, atmosphere gets taken into the uh, active-duty ranks. Yeah, I, let me not limit it to the academies. You know, the, uh, we follow um, the, the, the legal drinking age uh, of 21 uh, in, 
you're living someplace where the drinking age is lower, we we certainly uh, uh, don't condone that. The problem is, of course, you know, when these young men and women leave the confines of the installation, you know, the, the degree to which local authorities um, adhere to and comply with uh, the law is different. But if you're, if you're suggesting that there are, in most cases, if there's a linkage between alcohol use and sexual misconduct of, any, of many forms, the answer is yes. Uh, and uh, one, of the, one of the ways we're trying to get at, as I mentioned it in an earlier question, trying to get left of these incidents is also to increase our uh, awareness of uh, the, the factor that alcohol plays in any number of forms of misconduct to include driving under the influence, you know, sexual misconduct, uh, 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 violence. Um, it's it is a it's a it's a factor. It's also legal as long as you're of age uh, to partake in it. And where we find someone has not uh, has acted inappropriately and uh, allowed themselves to commit crimes or unprofessional behavior because of alcohol, we deal with it. Um, but I wouldn't limit it to the academies. Uh, you know, they they are held to the same standard with regard to alcohol uh, as the rest of the force. Thank you. And Rena. <clears throat> Hi. Thank you so much for uh, talking with us, General. My name is Rena. I'm with Home Park United Network. And I just had a quick question. Um, how do you, or what would you say? to some of these uh, men and women who are experiencing this, because it's not just women, when they see your your higher ranks getting what amounts to slaps on the wrist for this kind of behavior, uh, I think that has a great effect on the morale of your troops, and they think, what's the point in me saying anything, especially if it's someone that's supervisory to them? You know, when you see cases of of them getting slaps on the wrist for this kind of behavior? Well, uh, first of all, I think what, what I would want everyone to understand is that regardless of, of rank, if there is uh, evidence uh, and if that evidence is sufficient to take... You know, look, we still live in a system where a man or a woman for any particular crime is innocent until proven guilty. I mean, that's, that's pretty clear, and, and I think we have to start with that as a foundation. And then it's a matter of evidence, and I think we have to acknowledge that among the most difficult crimes to prove, and this is whether you're in uniform or out of uniform, one of the most difficult crimes to prove happens to be uh, the crime of sexual assault because of the um, the nature of uh, evidence, um, the, the fact that most of them at some level become conflicting narratives on the part of the, of the, uh, of the, of the man or woman accused and the victim. Um, and so it comes down to, as I mentioned in, in response to an earlier question, it comes down to continuing to train our prosecutors to the to the to be the best possible prosecutors they, they can be on that particular crime. But at the end of the day, in our system of government, one which I, I assume we all value deeply, the rule of law, um, it comes down to evidence and the ability of, of a prosecuting attorney and the ability of a jury or a judge to render a determination about the strength of the evidence. 
And I, I actually, again, I, I mentioned this in response to an earlier question. I, I think that the statistics will demonstrate that um, military, the military justice system actually uh, compares quite favorably in almost every area and better in, in many in its, both its prosecution rate and the, and the, uh, the punishment that is assigned. Um, I, I don't know whether I've answered your question, but, you know, again, we are... Um, no, no, you did. You did very much answer my question. I guess you mentioned earlier that there's a lot of adjudication that goes on, and, and like any normal case, as I worked in the criminal justice field in the public sector, I, I get that. Um, but like you said, the whole point is the, the bond of trust. And I guess that's why it's more of a, more of a focus in the military world as opposed to the civilian world. Yeah, I, I agree with that. I think that, you know, the, 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 especially the senior military leaders that uh, are guilty of this offense, the cases do take on greater notoriety. Frankly, I don't, uh, I don't rebel against that. You know, we should be held to a higher standard and because again, in our profession, the the anything that erodes the trust that holds us together is actually quite damaging, not just to the not just to the individuals involved, but to the entire profession. Thank you, sir. <clears throat> and, Thank uh, you, sir. Sorry about that, Rihanna. And Chris, you are next. Thanks, General, for uh, doing this. This is Chris Carroll from Stars and Stripes. Um, I, I wanted to ask you. Um, are all the additional checks and balances that have recently been put in place uh, to improve the system having any bad effect? I mean, are they perhaps causing the system to move more slowly and make it harder to prosecute crimes? We've uh, heard anecdotally that it's now taking a long time to get things done because everything has to go through a colonel or a general and then possibly re be reviewed at the Pentagon. So are the, the reforms causing any problems? Well, there's, I wouldn't call them problems, and, and you know, as I mentioned, there's uh, there, there's approximately 16 initiatives that the Joint Chiefs took. Uh, those were accepted by the Secretary of Defense, and he added a few. I think the number is 21 in total, um, and they're all in various stages of implementation. Of course, they'll slow things down on occasion, uh, particularly if you if you bring the reviewing authority. Um, to, to the next level, as you know, it was at the 05 level, now it's at the 06 level, and a couple of the services, in fact, I think most of them require review by the first general officer or flag officer in the chain of command. So there, yeah, there will be uh, a, an adjustment period where, you know, the Special Victims Council program uh, is, again, in various stages of implementation, and, and that individual who provides a very valuable benefit to the victim, but also is another... Uh, another stakeholder or another voice in the process. So when you add another stakeholder or another voice, you're going to naturally have a bit of a delay. But, but look, this isn't about, uh, uh, in my view anyway, it's not about speed, although, you know, uh, justice delayed is justice denied, as the famous phrase goes. But it's really about getting it right. And so we're going to see what these initiatives produce, and if we have to make adjustments as we go, we will. Thanks. Can I ask a follow-up? Uh, we have a we have to get through just a okay. few more, sure. Chris. So, uh, Jim, did Jim Garman, did you have a question? Jim, probably. actually, yes, I do, and I just figured out how to use this phone. Roger Can that. you hear me? 
Yes, loud and clear, Jim. Uh, sir, what, what is the measurement for success? You said you have about a year to, um, to make this right, to, to show progress. How would you show the, um, the progress? What's your measurement for it? Well, first, you, I'm not sure I should answer your question if you've just learned how to use a phone. But I will. I'll <laughs> Thanks. Um, no, that's a great question. We, In fact, I mentioned the 21 initiatives. The Chiefs and I have spent a great deal of time on the issue of metrics because, you know, we want to be able to m literally measure ourselves against whether we've made a difference in uh, the degree of reporting, uh, the, the number of cases that are taken to trial um, against uh, the things like the, co the command command climate, uh, which is either seen as being responsive to and alert to this issue in the workplace or whether it's business as usual. There's about 12 metrics that we've used that we've begun to review in a monthly session with the Joint Chiefs. And uh, the, the needle hasn't moved on most of them yet, but this we're very much in the first three months or so of this. The one place the needle has moved is in reporting, uh, to include, I think importantly, reports rendered about incidents that occurred more than a year ago. And in fact, we're getting a lot of reports now about incidents that occurred prior to a young man or woman entering the service. So the reporting metric is beginning to move, and we see that as positive, although we've got to see the other metrics uh, move as well. So that's where we are right now, Jim. And, sir, it just seems to me that this this bears, you know, your whole emphasis on professionalism of the force fits in with this program, too. Yeah, actually, I'd say it, well, I'd say it actually reverse to that, Jim. I think that this, this issue fits very firmly and very um, neatly into the larger issue of, uh, of, of our effort to kind of take a look at ourselves as a profession, make sure we got the values identified right that we're training and educating, also ad adapting our personnel policies so that um, we're reinforcing uh, professional behaviors in things like, uh, uh, you know, promotions and selection for command and, and measuring performance in command so that it's not just about did I get the top scores on the gunnery range or in maneuvers, but also did I create a climate within the unit that um, makes everyone feel as though they're being treated with dignity and respect and, and that we care about the development of our subordinates. Now, look, that brief's a lot easier than it's implemented, but we're, we're, we're at it. We're, I mean, we're committed, and, um, and I, think, I really think we can make a difference by focusing on who we are as a profession and uh, aligning ourselves with our professional behaviors. Thank you, sir. And, sir, uh, this is William Selby. I received a uh, question via Facebook earlier today, and uh, it kind of goes along with what you were saying about how reporting has gone up. Um, what are some ways the DOD is attempting to change fear of reporting among the branches? You know, some of it is actually educating not only the internal population but the external population, those who might be considering the military as a career. You know, we've got to be alert to, to the fact that um, the young men and women who might choose to come in the military are going to be having some anxious moments about this unless we, we can be clear about 
uh, what we're doing. Um, so, you know, you heard the earlier question about, you know, how do we make sure that uh, someone who's been a victim or been mistreated has a variety of methods with which to make the report? And, I, you know, uh, I've been, we've been trying to um, educate internally and externally about these nine different ways in which someone can render a report either anonymously or um, knowingly, meaning by identifying themselves. And I think that's one of the reasons these reports are beginning to increase. I think we're beginning, just beginning to have an effect on, on that part of the education process. And I hope this blog has, uh, helps me do that. You too, sir. Yes, sir. Uh, did you have time for one more question, sir? I do. Well, I mean, I, I, are you the moderator? I can't tell him. Yes, sir. This, yes, I am. How can I say no to the moderator? Go ahead. <laughs> uh, one, one other question was, uh, some public opinion exists supporting the idea that opening MOSs previously closed to women will affect the number of military sexual assaults that occur, namely that women in these MOSs will be at greater risk of becoming victims. Uh, can you share some of your thoughts on that perspective? Yeah, I actually don't think so. I, what I, here's what I think. I think, first of all, that uh, I mentioned earlier, very early in the, in the interview here, that um, I've been thinking about American exceptionalism and how it links to the exceptionalism of the military profession, or how it should and must link uh, to the exceptionalism of the military profession. And I think one of our great strengths as a nation, is diversity. I mean, I, look, I probably travel around the world more than anybody on this net. I can't absolutely make that declaration, but I'm, I'm guessing I'm in the top two or three. And as I do, uh, and as I return from these visits all over the world, it, I remind myself uh, that among our greatest strengths is the fact that, you know, we, we really are diverse. We embrace it. We, you know, we see power in it. And I think that the, de the degree to which we can open up the military profession and its occupational specialties to a more diverse group of people who meet the standards. We're not going to lower the standards in order to achieve diversity. I promise you that. But, but if, we can, if we can see ourselves more equal, you know, we're all co-equals in this because we serve together in more and more and more places, Again, assuming we can each meet the standards, I actually believe that 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 perception and reality of being equals in the profession will actually have the impact of reducing, or could have the impact, given the other initiatives we're also trying to reinforce, uh, of reducing the incidence of sexual assault. Because now you're you see yourself more as a teammate than as two different people doing two different things inside of one profession. But we'll see. I mean, we'll only, you know, this answer, we'll, we'll only know whether that's true uh, long after I'm the chairman of the Joint Chiefs of Staff, frankly. But I think we're heading in that direction, and I think it's the right direction in which to head. Thank you very much, sir. And I see that we are, uh, we're just about out of time. I wanted to thank you, everybody on the line, for your questions and comments today. Sir, did you have any uh, closing statement you'd like to make? Yeah, just to reiterate, um, you know, I went to two of the service academies last week, and my challenge to them was, you know, uh, immediately upon graduation, they'll become uh, our most junior officers in the ranks. And I, I wanted them to, to uh, agree with me 
that I'll work it from the top while they work it from the bottom. So it's really a call to arms of everyone who considers themselves to be a leader in the military profession to own this. Well, first of all, to own the profession, you know, and secondly, to own this issue. And if we can do that, if everybody will own it, uh, and I use the example of, you know, the first time, as a, even as a junior leader, the first time you walk past an infraction, you've set a new standard. And I said, just don't walk by. You know, take, you, if you, we're going to call you a leader by title, you've got to earn it. So this is a, this is a call to arms uh, to leaders, officers, non-commissioned officers, um, civilians, to take this profession and make it better help it overcome this challenge, and particularly to work this issue, which is so corrosive to the bond of trust that holds us together. Sir, we can't thank you enough for the time you've provided with us today and uh, also the, all the great answers to these questions. Thank you again to everybody on the line. Uh, we will have a transcript from this call, and also I will have the audio portion of this call up uh, within the next hour today. Uh, thank you to everybody on the line. You can find all the links on dodlive.mil. Again, thank you, sir, for your time. This concludes today's event.